Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. From remote learning to canceled testing and graduations, the pandemic has created big challenges for students. In today's show, we'll explore a ballot measure that aims to help with programs funded in part through higher marijuana taxes. And we talk with an adjunct instructor in the state's community college system about how some feel exploited by low pay and a lack of benefits. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. San Juan County, with its single incorporated town of Silverton, is a popular destination spot, and it's one of the top 10 most vaccinated counties in the nation. 99.9% of its eligible population has received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine, according to recent data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But despite the high vaccination rates, the pandemic is still impacting the day-to-day for many in this county in western Colorado. Recent spikes in cases and outbreaks over the summer have demonstrated that health measures beyond just getting the vaccine are critical in the battle against COVID-19. Ray Ellen Bichelle is a reporter with Kaiser Health News. She recently reported on San Juan County and the strategies public health officials are employing there to keep that highly vaccinated population safe and what lessons the rest of the state can take away from their experience. And she joins us now. Ray Ellen, thank you for speaking with us. Hey, Erin. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a little background on San Juan County, which is in southwestern Colorado. It's had an interesting history with COVID since the beginning of the pandemic, and it actually didn't log its first COVID hospitalization until early August of this year. Right. So they had five hospitalizations in August, the county's first of the whole pandemic. Um, And it was five people who are all believed to be unvaccinated. Um, So even though they've got this really high coverage rate, 99.9% of eligible people have gotten at least one dose. Total population, 85% fully vaccinated. Those are incredible numbers. However, it does mean that there are still some people that are not vaccinated. And with all the seasonal residents that come in during the summer and the tourists, a lot of those people have unknown vaccine status. So what I gathered from the county public health folks is that five people did get really sick. They're all believed to be unvaccinated. And they got sick enough that um, the five of them were in the hospital. Three got sick enough they went on ventilators, which is a really huge deal. And, um, And one of them ended up passing away. We're at a point in the pandemic where every ICU bed counts. And these are resources that are in short supply in a lot of places. Um, but but sort of in the biggest picture, what you hear all the time from public health folks is that every hospitalization almost and every death almost at this point is avoidable because of the vaccines. Now it's this uh, very highly vaccinated place, which provides a great case study to help us understand more about the vaccine and about other prevention measures and how they work together. But first of all, how did the county get to this amazingly high vaccination rate? So that's what I actually wanted to do the story about. It's like, how did you guys pull this off? The best I could gather from from my initial conversations on this is um, there's a strong sense of community. It's a really small town. 
It's about 730 people that are on file as being full-time residents. Um, they all know each other. And um, and also, I, I have to imagine that their public health director had a, a big role. You know, she's um, her name's Becky Joyce, and she seems to be kind of a, a one woman band in many ways. It sounds like she's the contact tracer. It sounds like you call her cell phone if you want to if you change your mind and you want the vaccine or if you need a covid test. Um, so I think that uh, there's probably a, a combination of things going on there that are that are specific to to that community. And as you mentioned, communities like Silverton do see a ton of tourism, uh, especially through the summer months. How does that complicate matters? I think the most obvious way that it complicates matters is that you you basically see a doubling of the population there. So there's a lot of people who live there um, seasonally. You know, maybe they run businesses there in the summer, but then go to a different state in the winter because it is a tough place to be um, in the winter months. It's it's fairly isolated. Um, there's seasonal workers. There's uh, there's tourists. Um, there's also a ton of people on top of that sort of doubling of the population who come in every day on the um, there's this historic railroad from Durango. And so people will come up just for a few hours or for a day or two. Um, so they see their population massively changes and grows in a big way. Um, every summer. Well, your reporting for this piece touches on the fact that for many local and national leaders, the vaccine has been focused on almost exclusively as the path forward out of this pandemic. But as we're seeing in San Juan County, the vaccine is not the only piece of the puzzle. How might these early examples of highly vaccinated places influence public health policies in places that don't have the same vaccination rates? Yeah, well, to your first point, I mean, there was and there has been such a big focus on the vaccine and for good reason. They're incredibly effective vaccines. They keep people out of the hospital. They keep them from having really severe um, cases most of the time. They, they, If you want to stay out of the hospital or the morgue, these vaccines are great. However, the messaging around this on a local and a national level has largely been vaccine over all else. And I think that's left a lot of people with the impression uh, first, early on, that we would be able to achieve herd immunity with the vaccine, which is now no longer the case because of the variants. Herd immunity is mathematically not possible, according to epidemiologists I spoke to. Um, but then also this idea that uh, if if everyone would just get the vaccine, then we wouldn't have to bother with any other measures. Um, and the truth of the matter is, in San Juan County, and people have been saying this for a long time, too, but I, San Juan County is really interesting because you, they're actually seeing it play out. It's kind of a, a, a living ex example of how you need to do this. Um, COVID requires a, a Swiss cheese model response. And the Swiss cheese model means there's always going to be a lot of layers. And one of those layers of defense, you know, each one has holes in it is the, the idea. But if you line them all up, then that's where you're really protected against COVID. So vaccines are an amazing layer, but they're just one layer. Masks are another layer. Masks indoors during COVID surges. Other layers can include like good ventilation or like uh, contact tracing. You know, these are all these different layers. Um, and what, what the residents of Silverton and San Juan County did is... Um, they reinstated a public health emergency as, as COVID cases surged and as they saw hospitalizations. They um, reinstated a, an indoor mask mandate for everyone, regardless of vaccine status. Um, and they were able to bring the, the cases back down again. Their conclusion is it's amazing that we have masks, but we also are willing to use the other tools available to us when needed. 
Right. And so where does San Juan County stand now and, and where does it go from here? Do you have a sense of what health officials they're going to be watching for? Well, let's see. It's uh, it's October. So that means that once the leaf peeping tourists leave, uh, they get a little bit of a break. The population's going back down to its sort of um, full time residents primarily. It'll be calmer there soon. Um, so I think from that standpoint, there's there's probably a bit of a uh, a sigh of relief among among those who are concerned. Um, and I think that they're uh, they're they're just um, aware that their population fluctuates, um, that a lot of those tourists and even part time residents, they won't know what their vaccine status is. And so um, it's an evolving situation. Rayel and Bichelle is a reporter with Kaiser Health News. You will find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. Rayel, and thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks a lot. This week, we're breaking down the three statewide ballot questions that voters will be deciding on November 2nd. Yesterday, we covered Amendment 78, which would make all spending decisions at the state capitol subject to lawmaker approval and not the governor in emergency situations. Today, we're looking at Proposition 119. Students have faced some of the biggest challenges during the COVID-19 pandemic. From remote learning to canceled proms and graduations, some policymakers think they need extra help in making up for lost time in the classroom. Prop 119 would fund new tutoring programs, mostly by raising the price of marijuana. KUNC's Scott Franz has more. Many state lawmakers say the pandemic has created an alarming divide. Democratic Senator Rhonda Fields says students who had access to resources and technology were able to thrive, while those that didn't got left behind. We have many, many students that are missing. Thousands of students that are missing because they're not plugged in. So in March, she sponsored a bill setting up a website to help both parents and school districts prevent learning loss. It's basically a how-to guide for keeping students engaged during COVID. Now she's backing a ballot measure to secure millions of dollars for low-income students to help get tutoring outside of school. Maybe you might need a little bit more reinforcement as it relates to algebra or maybe as it relates to other uh, social sciences. If approved, Proposition 119 would do that by gradually raising taxes on marijuana sales by 5% over three years. Nonpartisan analysts at the Capitol say the Learning, Enrichment, and Academic Progress Program, or LEAP, would net more than $100 million for the program during the next fiscal year. And it has bipartisan support. We're in desperate need of figuring out answers for kids. Including Republican Hugh McKean of Loveland, who disagrees with Fields on many other policy issues. Kids in a geometry class here, most of them failed geometry during the hybrid year. And, and they desperately need help so that we are not finding that they are further and further and further behind. McKean says 119 would help support groups like the Boys and Girls Club and even private businesses that provide tutoring and other after-school activities. A board would be created to oversee the distribution of grant funding, something McKean likes because the state, he says, has a bad track record of spending marijuana taxes on schools. This initiative, I think, is the beautiful answer to say, let's make sure that that we put the money where our mouth has been. 
and send it to programs that directly help kids. We see this as a scam, basically. That's Judy Solano. She's a retired school teacher and a former Democratic state lawmaker in Brighton. It's actually taking $21 million every year and more out of the state land trust funds, which were specifically set, set aside, and it's in our constitution, that those funds be used only for public schools. Solano is talking about some of the fine print that's not getting as much attention as the tax hike. She says the new tutoring program should not come at the expense of millions of dollars schools have used in recent years to keep class sizes small and increase broadband. Colorado has one of the lowest funded public education systems in the nation. And why would you want to take money away from our public schools by diverting $21 million and more. There is no sunset clause in this, so it can go on forever. No, I mean, I think that there's a valid concern there. And I think what what really that conversation becomes is that the land trust side money is going to have to be backfilled by the state. McKean says strong revenue forecasts will allow the state to take on LEAP without cutting any money that goes directly to schools. And voters have shown a willingness to embrace so-called sin taxes before. Last year, they approved raising the price of cigarettes and vaping products to fund a variety of programs, including education. But some teachers aren't buying it. There's some unknowns about this ballot measure and, you know, some of the some questions around implementation and how will that work in our rural communities. Amy baca Olert leads the Colorado Education Association, the state's largest teachers union. Our board decided that neutral would be the best position and that this is something that, again, the voters should dig into and and make a, a decision on. Meanwhile, Proposition 119 is already shaping up to be one of the most heated and personal clashes on the November ballot. The editorial board of the Denver Gazette blasted Solano for launching a, quote, dubious campaign to crush Colorado kids. It sounds really good to the average voter. Oh, we're going to, you know, take this syntax and we're going to use it for helping kids with their learning loss. Why aren't you just taking that money and giving it to the local school boards to make those decisions, the local districts? The authors of 119 did not return multiple phone calls and or emails to talk about their campaign. Instead, they've invested heavily in social media ads spotlighting their supporters, which include former governors from both parties. I'm Scott Franz. You can read more about the statewide ballot questions at KUNC.org. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The Colorado Community College System has pledged to make secondary education more equitable and accessible to all students. But some faculty in the system feel excluded from that mission. In September, two Front Range Community College instructors published an opinion piece in the Colorado Sun describing how they felt exploited as adjunct or part-time faculty. They described how the system relies on part-time educators who outnumber full-time instructors four to one, but that system woefully underpays them. In most cases, they don't receive benefits like health care. 
Mark Ducharme, an English composition teacher at Front Range Community College in Westminster, is one of the authors of that opinion piece, and he joins us now to share his experience as an adjunct faculty member and what kind of change he would like to see. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start by talking briefly about the difference between adjunct and full-time faculty. Can you explain? Yeah, so um, full-time faculty are hired, uh, they're paid an annual salary. I think the average is somewhere in the 60s, uh, 60,000-something, and uh, uh, they have benefits. They are paid 12 months of the year to work, usually nine months, So, though I think some of them, like people who are chairs or lead faculty, sometimes work during the summer. So, so they have what you would consider to be a normal job. As an adjunct, what, how does that differ? Um, I take it you don't receive benefits? No. Adjuncts are basically hired contract to contract. So you get a contract for your classes that semester, and you teach them, and you're paid a, a certain amount per class. There's really no job guarantee, although many of us have worked there for, for many years, you know, we're employees, but we're, we're not considered full-time employees, no matter how many classes we teach. And uh, there's, there are no health benefits. Now, in your recent opinion piece in the Colorado Sun, you cite a report from the American Association of University Professors that says there are just over 1,100 full-time faculty employed across all uh, CCCS colleges, uh, as you mentioned, their average salary is around 65000 They have benefits, relative job security. In contrast, the Colorado Community College system employs 4,500 adjunct faculty, referred to as instructors. Uh, the average salary that is earned um, is 25000 per year. What is your understanding of why the system employs so many more adjuncts rather than full-time faculty? That might be a question you should address to Joe Garcia, uh, the chancellor of the Colorado Community College System. But I will say that my understanding is that it allows the system to have some flexibility as a enrollment uh, fluctuates. They don't have to commit to all their teachers. They can just throw us classes when it suits them. And for people who you know, don't know, even though adjuncts are technically part-time, many end up working full-time hours. Is that the case in your experience? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, most of them, I would say, work full-time hours, you know, take on lots of classes, at di sometimes at different institutions. So you have many adjuncts who are driving from campus to campus, going, for, uh, you know, teaching here, uh, rushing out to drive to the next uh, campus where they have a class to teach. It's not like most of us choose to be part-time and, and most of us work lo longer hours. For people who do technically work full-time hours as adjuncts, is the wage acceptable to live on? No, it's, it's, it's not. So um, the different colleges, there are 13 colleges in the system, the pay at the different colleges varies. I think some of the rural colleges pay actually much lower than even we're paid in the colleges in the metro area. And it also varies somewhat by discipline. For example, people who teach science classes with labs get paid more money than someone like me who teaches like an English class. 
to give you an example, I get paid uh, and I'm at the top pay level for you know my discipline at my college, but I get paid $2,900 roughly per class. And, and that, this is after we just got a 3% raise. So that's with the 3% raise. And to give you an example, the majority of colleges and universities across the country, four classes a semester is considered a full-time load. At the CCCS, five classes a semester is considered a full-time load. But that's not a, li- a living wage uh, if you multiply 2,900 by four or five. We are speaking with Mark Ducharme, an English composition teacher at Front Range Community College in Westminster. I am wondering, has it always been like this for community college instructors? And if not, when did this trend start to take hold of bringing on more people to work part-time? Nationwide, uh, it's a trend that's been going on for decades, and it's been getting worse. Back in the 70s, 1970s, most institutions, there were at least about two-thirds tenured or tenure-track professors and about one-third who were contingent or adjunct professors. Uh, But now those numbers nationwide are are roughly the opposite. In the Colorado community college system, it's particularly bad because we're paid so low. Adjuncts at other institutions in the state are not paid as as poorly as we are. And has the CCCS taken any action to make conditions better for adjuncts? Let me give you some history here. In 2014, a bill was introduced in the General Assembly to basically pay instructors equal pay for equal work. That bill was defeated. The CCCS lobbied against it. A similar bill was introduced, I believe, the following year, and the CCCS lobbied against it. And that bill was defeated too. Uh, I believe the CCCS spent upwards of $100,000 lobbying against these two bills. So you could say that the CCCS has done everything it can to avoid paying us a living wage. As a matter of fact, uh, we, we were in negotiations for a couple of years with upper level administrators in the CCCS. And in one of those meetings, Joe Garcia flat out said, a living wage is not a number we can get to. That said, perhaps because of, of the pressure we've, we've been trying to exert on the system, there is now a, a, a watered down version of a proposal to raise pay for instructors that's currently, my understanding is it's currently being cons- considered at the system level. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen with that. I don't know whether it's going to go through or not. But in the version of the proposal that I've seen, they're, they're talking about only a 20 to 30% raise, which is not adequate. What does this situation overall mean for you? I'm curious about how it's impacted your career and your life. I mean, I, I have to worry from semester to semester whether I'm going to get enough classes, whether those classes are going to make enrollment, because if not enough students enroll, the class is canceled, whether a class will get taken from me because a full-time, full-time faculty member needs it, uh, which has happened. You know, I have to worry about all sorts of things that uh, I don't think I should have to worry about. It seems to me that the most important thing I should have to worry about is is my teaching and, you know, the success of my students. But unfortunately, I have to, to worry about 
how I'm going to feed myself and how I'm going to keep the little condo I have and, and how I'm going to, you know, survive. And what are your next steps? I mean, we've been working on this for seven or eight years. This is, this is not something we've just started working on. So we're going to continue doing our work. One thing and one reason uh, why we're so glad that uh, you guys are giving me this opportunity to talk to you and your listeners today is because we think that people in Colorado should be more aware of this issue. The taxpayers of Colorado should be aware of this. The, the students and their parents should be aware of this. You're going to college and you think your professor has a nice, comfortable life. And in fact, that's that's in many cases just not true. We're, we're torn between, you know, all our responsibilities. We, you know, many adjuncts overcommit to classes because, you know, they're just trying to survive. And I understand why, why uh, some of my colleagues do that. We live under a tremendous amount of stress and, um, you know, it's not an optimal situation for the students. And it's not, the, the cruel irony is that the community colleges serve students who come from non-traditional backgrounds, students who are first generation, students whose first language is not English, and, and students who have other uh, disadvantages. They're being given instructors who have the same worries that they do in many cases, you know, how, how, how to put food on the table. It does not do them a service, I feel. It's not that instructors don't care and don't try to do the best job they can. It's just that, you know, we have to worry about our survival. Mark Ducharme is an English composition teacher at Front Range Community College in Westminster. Mark, thanks so much for talking with us and sharing your experience. Sure. Thank you, Erin. And just a note, we reached out to the Colorado Community College system for their perspective, but they didn't get back to us before our production deadline. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll explore a question on the November ballot intended to help lower property taxes, although lawmakers and others are divided on what the true impact would be. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.